And so today I am so uh, pleased and, and honestly honored to, to have um, a very, very influential figure in my life, uh, someone who I was lucky enough to, uh, to, to be a student of at Cal Poly and who was also my senior project advisor, Dr. Ryan Alaniz. And today I, I wanted to talk about his book that he wrote, From Strangers to Neighbors, Post-Disaster Resettlement and Community Building in Honduras. Um, and so, Dr. Alaniz, just uh, briefly introduce yourself and and just kind of you know talk talk about what what compelled you to write this book, what what you were really trying to explore and uh, and try and uncover in uh, in writing it. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me on your podcast. Um, I've listened to others, and I really thought you did a great job. So I'm I'm glad to be able to participate. Uh, this book actually came from a really interesting question. In 2004, I was uh, running a small nonprofit called the Football Project, football being F-U-T-B-O-L, so soccer in Spanish. And we would deliver soccer equipment to orphaned and underprivileged children, mostly in Latin America, but also Uganda and the Philippines. But they had to do a, a project first, a service project for their community, whether it's picking up trash or painting a building or planting trees so that they didn't become uh, dependent on us. And I was invited to work with an, a nonprofit in Honduras uh, that was working with children and families who had been resettled after Hurricane Mitch, which happened in 1998. And Hurricane Mitch was bad. It, it, every single bridge in the country was either damaged or destroyed. Um, it was it was a stronger hurricane than Hurricane Katrina. Uh, more than 10,000 people died. It was a really bad situation for the country. And when the country tried to rebuild, they had zero limpira. They had zero dollars to do relief, let alone recovery and, and eventually resettlement for people mm -hmm. who had been affected. And so here I am working with this this group of people who had been displaced and a nonprofit had shown up, many multiple nonprofits had shown up and built homes for them. Um, and then they just essentially put them there in these different locations, people from who didn't know each other often. And the question came about as I was delivering the soccer equipment, it was just a really off the hand comment from the executive director of this, of this resettlement, she said, you know, it's just really too bad that the resettlement down the road, three miles away, they have so much crime that it's actually spilling over into our community. Mm. And somehow that bounced around in the back of my head. And as I was thinking about dissertation ideas, it became a question. Well, one, was that true? And two, why would that be if two uh, resettlements were founded, brand new infrastructure, a bunch of support and they were brought together people again somewhat randomly but but with similar characteristics into these mm -hmm. different places mm -hmm. why would they have such different outcomes and so that was really the core of my question and i ended up not just studying those two but seven altogether when yeah. you when you do a comparison of two things you're all obviously going to find difference but i tried to then take the five other communities and create kind of a dummy community. I took the averages of those five communities as a comparison to see whether or not these two communities were actually that different from 
from even the kind of the dummy community. And indeed, they were quite a bit different in terms of their long term social health outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I only read read this book, uh, picked it up a couple weeks ago. Um, and, you know, I, you, you had kind of shared shared briefly with me what, you know, what, you know, what, what it was about. And I was I was really struck by this, you know, this this idea that I think a lot of us in the West, when we think about, you know, foreign intervention, whether that be, you know, aid from governments, aid from NGOs, like how how to build up, um, you know, communities in the developing world, like we, we think of it from a very fiscal and logistical and like infrastructure point of view. And, you know, what, what I think gets left, you know, by the, by the wayside is is building cohesive communities that trust each other, that respect each other, that are, you know, aiming towards an ideal. And so, um, you know, in, in this book, you, you, you focus primarily on this comparative study between two resettlements. One is uh, Suyapa and one is Pino Alto. And, um, you know, you, you, you kind of touched on the, the barriers and, and the obstacles to resettlement in Honduras, the, the, the context of this devastating natural disaster and, you know, the, the, the trauma that all these people felt displaced from their homes, displaced from loved ones, forced to, to move into, you know, a, a, a new community with, a, with, with no, you know, uh, previous identity. And so can you just kind of talk about the, you know, first, first, the, the obstacles to effective resettlement and, and how this, this one community in Suyapa seemed to prioritize long-term social health and, and what, what does social health even mean? Like, what, what does it look like? Why is it important? Yes, those are all great questions. So <laughs> I, I guess we'll start with the dessert first. Social health would is really a sense of community that's based on various characteristics. Like, do people trust one another? Uh, is there a sense of, of civic participation, meaning do they do they participate? Do they vote? If there's a community project, are they engaged in that? Um, collective efficacy, meaning do they look out for one another? If a drug dealer, for example, is selling drugs to children in the community, would individuals try to stop them from doing that? Um, and as I mentioned, social capital or, or this idea of a, of a network uh, of trust that they that they can lean on one one another if they're in need, and then uh, social cohesion, where there's a sense of identity that they do have a common identity, common values that they're working towards, common goals. Um, and so, we often, I think you're right, we don't necessarily always think about these concepts here in the in the U.S. because they, they're not as relevant. What I mean by that is that we have a very individualistic society, the idea of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I shouldn't ever need to ask my neighbor for help. I don't, I'm not vulnerable. I, I can do this on my own. Where there, it's not uncommon for people to run out of food at the end of the week and have to go to their neighbor hat in hand and say, hey, you know, I, I can't feed my kids. Can I borrow some rice and, and beans and tortillas to, to, you know, make sure that they're fed and then what that does is if a neighbor does present and offer food, then that, then that creates this reciprocal relationship of trust where then that neighbor who offered this time, maybe the next week then 
they, they can count on that person for reciprocating and, and providing food or providing an extra hand if they're doing any building or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and so it, it is a little foreign, this idea of, of community health, but it's absolutely essential in smaller communities, communities that don't have government support, uh, that they don't necessarily trust the, gov the, the police um, who are often corrupt that they have uh, external forces like gangs um, trying to enter and get a foothold into these communities. Um, for example, um, gangs will come into a community and demand a war tax, a puesto de guerra, from community members, essentially saying, if you don't, extorting them, if you don't pay us money, then we are going to burn your house down. If you don't pay us money, then then violence may happen to your family. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they can't count on the government, so they need each other. And in doing so in poverty and not being able to trust the government, they have to be able to, um, yeah, support one another in these processes. So, so social health is critically important. <clears throat> Yeah, I forgot your your last question. Yeah. No, I I think I asked like nine questions in there, so I I, I don't uh, I don't I don't you know anticipate that you're that you're going to answer all of them, but you know the so with, with with that you know with that goal and and framework in mind, um, you know one one thing that that stuck out to me is, is kind of you know I think a conclusion or or an inference that you drew based on. Um, you know, studying these two communities and how they how they differed so widely in you know metrics of crime, corruption, civic participation, all of these metrics that are indicative of a of a healthy community is that um, when you have a you know a displaced, resettled community of you know people who have felt substantial trauma, um, mm -hmm. most of whom haven't seen a healthy community modeled to them in their in their lifetime like they they haven't they don't know what that looks like that they from you know from the outset can't necessarily be trusted to know how to create that and cultivate that themselves that they need you know a, an established structure um you know consequences for you know delinquency misdeeds like accountability um and so you know can can you kind of speak to so there were there were two NGOs uh, that that worked in in each of these communities. La Iglesia was the name of the one that worked in Suyapa, the, the successful one, and La Internacional was the one who worked in Pino Alto. So can you kind of break down the, the differences in like the philosophical approaches between the two? Great question. So I think in the West and the global north, we tend to approach development, quote unquote development with particular assumptions. <clears throat> uh, the assumption in terms of resettlement that, that these nonprofits had is that if we build it, if we provide the infrastructure, they'll figure everything else out. Mm. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, people don't always have the capacity to rebuild or to, act, sorry, not rebuild, to create from scratch a sense of community and trust. Um, that's not easy. If you, even if you think about a dorm where people are 
not worried about, you know, whether they have enough to eat or gang violence. There's still conflict. I think about faculty meetings. <laughs> There's right. still conflict. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So to just assume that people will have it all figured out is a really is really problematic. So uh, in the book, I argue that they have to spend as much time on social structures, building these these social connections, building this uh, uh, peculiar culture that will support them in the long run as they do on infrastructure. So it's not about saying, here's your house, have fun, we're off, we're off to the next project, although that's nice and it does meet that Maslow hierarchy of need, you know, the very basic foundation of shelter. It's not enough to actually have long-term success. Uh, I give an example in the book of a, a community that a US organization came in, built some houses very quickly. They were the first one to get land, first one to, to put people, single mothers, they focus really on the most vulnerable population, single mothers, they put them in there and their children into these homes faster than anybody else. And they're like, after they took some pictures with the kids running around and patted themselves on the backs and they're like, all right, on to the next project. And within mm -hmm. six months, the gang came in, took over that community and each woman had to pay that war tax, which impoverished women, you can imagine what that would be. Uh, and so these, these assumptions that, um, that the West comes in with are often can make situations worse for people than than living in these temporary shelters where at least they were safe. Um, yeah. So additionally, I think it's a really great point that in these cities uh, in Tegucigalpa, where most of the people came from, they weren't necessarily surrounded by I, uh, a culture of healthy connection and communication. They were afraid. It's one of the most most violent nations in the country, or in, excuse me, in the world. And so that does not. They bring that that backpack full of experience that's kept them safe to this new location. And so that doesn't always bode well for community development if people are scared of one another and distrust one another immediately because that's that's what's kept them safe in their previous life and so there has to be some overcoming of that and the only way to do that i found was through the uh support of a nonprofit. now to your second point um, another assumption that north that kind of the global north has is that people have agency that people just can can do it and and we shouldn't tell them what to do. And uh, we don't want to repeat this kind of uh, white man's burden um, or white savior complex where we go and, and try to save them. And I absolutely agree. And I got a lot of pushback because I said, no, actually, organizations should stay put. Organizations should work with these communities for six to 10 years because they they we can't assume that they're going to figure it out that they have that capacity they need that capacity needs to be built they need to be taught leadership skills um or or, or foster the skills that they already have uh, it's just such a unique situation to bring a, a bunch of strangers together and not knowing what their background what their strengths and weaknesses are and just expecting them to figure it out so right. In general, I think those were the, the some of the really problematic assumptions. One that um, 
yeah, that, that people have the right, the correct background that they need into that infrastructure will save infrastructure yeah. is enough. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to un unpack that last point a little bit more because that, that was one of the most surprising aspects. And I, I think you kind of detail in the book that you were kind of surprised yourself that that's what you ended up finding and realizing was that, um, you know, this this kind of like self-sufficiency, self-empowerment approach of, of, you know, really entrusting the local community to know how to, um, you know, how to fend for themselves and how to build and cultivate community because of, you know, of, of course, they're, they're the ones living there. Um, that actually doesn't work or it's, or it's not complete enough of a, of, of an approach. Um, and that was, you know, kind of in, in, I think the, the narratives, um, the, the sociological narratives of, you know, of, of this time, you know, I, I think really tell the West that, you know, there's this massive historical precedent of how, you know, like quote unquote interventionalist approaches where the West comes in with an, with an idea of how to construct and how to build a, you know, a community in the developing world ends up turning into like a very colonialistic, you know, uh, you know, imperialistic, uh, you know, framework and, and the, the community goes by the wayside and they get exploited and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I think that, that, that kind of, I think detracts people from, from really understanding, I, I think how to, how to build, you know, an, an effective community and, and an analogy that you used in, in the book that really kind of helped me to understand this was the, the analogy of a parent and a child and how, when, you know, when a child is, is young and vulnerable and, and impressionable, the, the, the parent really needs to come in and, and establish structure and establish, you know, norms and, and boundaries of, of how to act properly in the world and act respectfully. Um, and, you know, kind of the, the art of being a parent, so to speak, is, is knowing when to, when to step, start to step away to allow the child to create their own identity and, and be self-sufficient and be accountable for their own actions. And so you, you, you kind of talk about this paradigm between like the interventionalist approach and like the self-help approach and how to kind of strike, strike a balance there. And so I was, you know, I was, I was curious, like how, you know, in, in the time that you spent there, cause you know, you, you don't paint the, the quote unquote successful community to be entirely perfect either. You know, there were, there were certainly residents there that, that, you know, had certain gripes with, with how, um, you know, their, their leadership was, was running things. And so, you know, how, how did you kind of see throughout your experience there, how to effectively, you know, give a community structure and give a community an ideal to orient themselves towards and, and know kind of when to, when to step away to, to really make the, the community feel empowered that they're making their own decisions. Yes, that's a great question. I think that analogy is really, um, I think it's a good one, but I think it's fraught 
with potential misinterpretation because this right. idea of paternalism has been seen through colonialism for a long time. Oh, our ways are better. And so we're gonna teach you how to do things better. And at the end of the day though, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are things that um, organizations can do to help structure a community to be more successful that the individuals themselves may not necessarily realize. And so striking that balance, I think, is um, I try to um, move away from the golden rule and talk about the platinum rule. And the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have done unto yourself. The platinum rule, do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. So go in and talk and communicate and participate and be involved and offer ideas and come to consensus and try to get as many people on board as possible. Uh, and you're never going to get everybody on board, but generally speaking, what they did, uh, like Lacia did, was they really, they were Honduran that were working there first and foremost. Uh, they drew upon the strengths of what they knew the community to be, and in that case, most people were Catholic. And so that helped bring together and bond them because they shared a common sense, a common culture, a common set of values, a co common belief system, and really build on those strengths and say, hey, this is, you know, we, we see that a lot of people in the city throw trash out the window from the bus or throw it into the river. And we see that that's a cultural norm in the city, but hey, wouldn't it be nice if we actually put it into a trash can and then we didn't see see um, it um, the wind blowing it everywhere or the dogs digging through it? And people are like, yeah, that sounds that does sound a lot better. And I mentioned in the book too that the pro this process it's it's absolutely key that the first generation, the first people to arrive make these particular decisions about the cultural, how the culture will be, because once they set that culture, that everybody that comes in is gonna be looking around and saying, well, how, how are things here? How am I yeah. supposed to act? And that first generation of individuals will say, this is what we do. We don't throw trash on the ground. We do throw it into the trash can. Um, we do don't have music after loud music after 10 o'clock, even though that was acceptable where you came from. We want to we want to have more peace and quiet here, especially for the little children. And so that first generation sets the standard and then everybody is just like, oh, OK, well, that's how it is here. I'm going to follow those rules because because they're entering into this new situation. And again, it's very much like the dorms where people are coming in and looking around like, I don't know the expectations here. And if you get a group of partiers who are like, hey, let's 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 make this happen. Let's let's go wild. Then that will set an, a sp specific expectation that people will follow. But if people are like, no, the you know, we want to be responsible. Uh, we we want to have a good time, but we also want to make sure we all do well in school. Um, we want to serve one another. Then that's going to create a very different culture that doesn't happen just within that generation, but will just continue to be passed down. And once it right. once it's developed, it's very difficult to change. Um, you, yeah. Anybody can think about their own communities. How hard is it to get people to change the way things have been done for a long time? Um, mm. It reminds me of Fiddler on the Roof, right? Tradition. Yeah. Well, 
start yeah. good traditions at the very beginning. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wish that I had um, a little bit more of that in my freshman year dorm for sure. Um, but so I, I, I wanted to turn, I wanted to turn the focus, you know, on, onto you because I, I think, you know, this, I mean, this is a, this is an unprecedentedly unique book in trying to analyze, you know, taking all of these resettlement communities and, and analyzing how to effectively rebuild a, a community after, after a, you know, a, a, a a violent disaster it's you know it's it's a book that you know is is an incredible intellectual contribution and, and acts as kind of a, a a blueprint i think for how you know foreign intervention how domestic intervention works and and i think has wider ranging implications for for how we think about rebuilding communities and and, and the focus on building you know, cohesive, connected, um, empathetic communities, you know, you know, unified by like a, a common ideal. And, you know, this, 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 this book is, is, you know, written like a research paper in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of like beautiful narrative writing, um, and, and beautiful personal testimonials that you have of, of, you know, organizers of these communities who who have this vision of of a of a better life for the people around them than they had you know they they had experienced and and so I I wonder how this this book touched you how 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 you know and and you're you're from Honduras yourself right no where 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 are you from originally I'm from San Luis Obispo County originally well right right right. <laughs> Um, but, you know, spent, spent extended time in, in Latin America and, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, spending time in Honduras, making this book and, and, and doing the research for it and, you know, um, you know, like un, un, uncovering the, the, the potential of community building was, was you know, in, inspiring and, and, um, you know, empowering for you. So I, I, I wonder what in, in that process of, of making this book, how, how it, uh, you know, how, how it changed your, you know, um, outlook or, or, or perspective in any way. Yeah. So the first thing that came to mind was I have a, so much more respect for libraries and all the authors who put in so much time and energy. <laughs> um, yeah. That book was, uh, I think it took me eight years to write it from nine years, maybe from the start of doing research to the completion and publication. So they're definitely works of love, not works of financial gain. <laughs> right, right. But um, <laughs> to the to your broader point, yes, I spent a um, the first year I spent in Honduras was right after college where I volunteered at an orphanage um, uh, nearby, just a couple of hours away. And so this was my second year in Honduras. And it was, you know, it's it's so very humbling for folks that have traveled internationally. They, they know that there's just a uh, 
it's it's a it's a really beautiful experience to be able to see the way other people live and other the way they do things differently, and in some cases, uh, the Honduran culture is is a mess. It's um, there's a lot of misogyny and and machismo and um, drinking's really common and violence and there's also so much incredible beauty and people that really care and they won't just give you directions they won't just point you in the way they're gonna take 45 minutes to walk and make sure that you get there and then they're going to give you your phone number just their phone number just in case you get lost again and then you can call them up um they're going to take you into their homes and give you a place to stay even though they they met you 15 minutes ago uh, they're going to bring you in for dinner uh, they're going to invite for me they invited me to children's birthday parties i went to a wake for somebody who had who had passed away in the community oh, i yeah. was able to join and play soccer in the in the tournament and um, I, I went there with um, my partner at the time and our six-month-old and they just embraced us we were just beloved and so th yeah. those are experiences that i if i were to show up in san diego <laughs> or or to um you know any most parts of the u.s i just would not receive that same kind of welcome yeah. so i i try to hold on to that I, I find and i just went back with my my son who's now 13 and brought him to show him and so that he can experience that kind of hospitality, that kind of, of givingness and love towards strangers, because yeah. I want him to have that in his heart as he in, enters the world. I want him to have that kindness and generosity. Um, and that's what I want for myself. And so, yeah, I yeah. recognize there's problems and um, I've had my own issues in that country. But at the same time, I, I wish a lot of Americans could have that that uh, that deep kindness and empathy and and uh, hospitality that I found not just in Honduras but in in Latin America in general. Yeah, it's it's, it's beautiful, and you know what? I was almost like tearing up now just you know listening to you sharing that because my uh my my excuse me my parents are originally from south africa um and they they moved three years after apartheid ended and i i was born in the states um and i've you know because of how 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 far it is away and and how much of a of a time and financial investment i've only been there twice twice in my life and once really as a, you know, as a cognizant a, a adult who could really take in the experience and the, the, the generosity and the hospitality that I felt from, you know, from, from family members who I really didn't know and, you know, friends of my parents who like were so generous and, and, you know, compassionate and just welcomed us with open arms. Um, you know, for for all of the problems that that country has had and, and still continues to have, um, like you know, I, one one thing that that my mom has kind of ingrained in me is is that that hospitable, generous, extending nature, and it's so foreign to us in this country, um, and it's 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 also bizarre because like you know, 
I know a lot of family members who have very problematic views on women, on racial minorities, on, you know, like carry a lot of, you know, to us, uh, you know, kind of just, I, I think, distaste or, or, or just naivete, but the, the bonds to community and family and kin are like undisputed and and seemingly a, a, a you know so many cultures um and and that's you know I, I i think that that was really what i you know came away with this with this book is you know like people just need to be shown the right you know shown the right way of doing things and shown that it's possible and and have the the the, the support and you know the, the 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 trust like you know I, I think one one thing that you know the the ngo that was successful did was was really act as like kind of like a quasi like law enforcement agency like they were really there as like an anti-corruption anti-crime like wing of the you know of the local government there and you know when when you've grown up your whole life worrying um you know, worrying where the next meal is going to be, worrying if your kids are going to come home safe, like worrying, like constantly, you know, with this built-in paranoia, like that obviously spills into a, a fear of others and a fear of your of your neighbors. And you know, the 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 the, the book title sums up that that trajectory and that path perfectly, um, of of how to cultivate that that neighborly spirit that, you know, these, these people have, they, they have that capacity. They just, you know, they, they, they just need the, the support so that that fear and anxiety, you know, transforms into hope and, and connection and, and love, I think. Yeah. It's, it's almost providing the fertile, fertile soil, the social, the the social fabric a soft landing a a new yeah just a new opportunity to kind of re uh to question everything that they've learned and say hey is this what i want or do i want something else so for example domestic violence is very 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 high and it's almost, it's very rarely ever enforced or law enforcement almost never gets involved. But there, people get involved in domestic violence. And the, the as I share in the book, the La Iglesia was able to take, take the name of, a, of somebody who had been abusing his wife physically and, and verbally and take his name off of the mortgage and uh, get, put the wife's name on the mortgage and on, on the house. And for some, that might see, seem very heavy-handed. For some, that might seem um, as, well, one person makes a mistake and they lose their home. Uh, but it's, it's much more complicated than that. This person had been abusing his wife for, for years, and the neighbors were complaining, and no one could do anything. And so this organization, because they held those mortgages was able to step in and like you said, kind of be a quasi government agency. Um, since since the police were never going to get involved, 
since the neighbors couldn't really do anything to stop it from happening, since this woman impoverished with two kids, where is she going to go? What is she going to do? Uh, the organization did have that opportunity. And yeah, the, the guy was upset about it and his friends were upset about it. But to me, taking again, the macro level view, that was the right thing to do. That, yeah. that, that man, how else was that going to turn out? Um, and, and then he was, of course, teaching his kids and he was, and, and other people knew about it. And those kids were learning that domestic violence is okay. So in order to maintain a, a healthy culture, when one hasn't been created in the first place, there has to be some kind of intervention. And in this case, it was the quasi government kind of quasi government nonprofit that was involved. Right. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned um mortgages which is which is what i what i kind of wanted to touch on next is i think a, another you know m massive disparity from a from kind of a, a a planning perspective was the way soyapa you know um integrated a system of of consequences for um for for actions and so they um unlike I think all of the other settlements that you studied mm -hmm. um, had uh, their their residents pay mortgages for their for their houses, um, whereas in the other communities they paid with labor with with sweat equity, um, and so in that community where they where they were paying for their houses, their uh, their mortgages could get revoked if they you know if they were found assaulting their wife or or found robbing of liquor store or you know any any delinquent act and so there was this built-in you know system of of accountability that um and, and and a lot of times it wouldn't be the individual that would lose their home it would be you know their i mean obviously if they were living with their family that you know the, the the consequences um were you know were extended beyond themselves and so um you know can 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 you kind of speak on the the importance of and you know one one thing that was really difficult for la iglesia was was kicking people out and and kicking people out who you know a lot of times were probably well-meaning they they just you know for one reason or another um were economically disadvantaged in that in that you know in that particular time and weren't able to you know, weren't able to afford to pay, but a, a lot of times were like problematic individuals and they kind of got pushed back from the community of like, you know, you're not extending enough, you know, grace or, or compassion or forgiveness or, or understanding. Um, but, you know, they really saw it as like a, you know, a, a very salient way of like ingraining this messaging of like, there are consequences for your actions and you know this is this is the way that we want our community to act and if you act out you know outside of the scope of that like you know you're going to be punished yes that's that's really true so there was in in suyapa i'm not sure if it's in the, in the book or not there was a drug dealer and everybody knew they were a drug dealer all the neighbors knew everybody knew and that was had ties to the gang and the that there was an encroachment they wanted more and more influence in this community. And the uh, La Iglesia, the organization, 
recognize that, well, drug dealers and, and gang members also don't pay their mortgage <laughs> often. And so in that case, they were illegally and they went through all the legal means to be able to remove this individual who was causing a lot of social harm. They, they removed them for a different legal reason for not paying their mortgage. Without that mechanism, had they just given the, the 40 weeks of work that other people had done, uh, that sweat equity, they would never be able to take that away. And in uh, La Internacional, when I interviewed um, uh, the director, they're like, yeah, we wish we would have had, we wish we would have done it differently because we don't have any control over this community whatsoever. We can't, we can't kick people out, even if they're, even if they're harming other people. And um, again, I don't know if I mentioned it, but in La Iglesia or uh, Pino Alto, where La Iglesia had developed that community, uh, the, and this is hard, this is foreign for Americans, right? The police officers were not only assaulted, but were some were killed in that community. So the police were afraid to be in that community, um, and people were afraid to go to the police because they were afraid the police would tell their neighbor or tell the gang what they were saying, and it would come back. Right. To, to, so there there are not the same mechanisms. So people in Suyapa they did give up a little bit of their agency to receive, and this is a philosophical question that you had mentioned, what do you have to give up in order to have security? And mm. again, for us, it's, it's I leave my door open, some, I leave my back door open all the time in my house. I guess I shouldn't say this on podcast, but I just don't worry <laughs> about it because it's a safe neighborhood. And, and that's not, that would never happen in in honduras that's you have high gates you have razor wire you have uh shards of glass embedded in concrete at the top of your wall you have uh, grates on the windows like the the insecurity that people feel because there is so much desperation and a culture of violence um pe it, people are willing um el salvador right now for example their neighbor in of honduras has put in martial law in order to, to try and quell the gang violence that's happening right there. Um, Honduras has done the same thing in the past. So it's just really hard to understand. And, and you know, progressives and liberals are like, well, you can't take away people's freedom. Well, mm -hmm. they're, they're not, they don't have to stay there. They can leave, right. but people right. don't wanna move to Pino Alto. People are desperately trying to get in to Suyapa. And I think that that is a testament to the success of what they did. People would much rather have security than to not have a liquor store in their community, to, right. to um, know that this agency could take away their home, but only if they're you know, doing something really, really terrible. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, you know, especially after there's been such a precedent in you know these these folks lives of instability of of pain and suffering and um you know fear fear of fear of safety um to 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 finally you know be integrated in a community that they can relatively trust um and it it, it sounds like um yeah an, another question that i just wanted to ask is is do you do you know like the the current state of of all of those communities because this you were there in 2009, 2010, I believe. 
um, and the the book came out in like 20, 2015, 2016. So do you do you know what the what the present day situation of of those communities are? Do you do you keep in contact with with anyone um, from those communities still? Yes, um, one of my best friends is an engineer. My best friend, I would say, Julio, and he works in both communities. Um, he's hired to work in different communities if they need to do a water, a new water um, kind of wastewater plant, or they need to build a, a kind of a mini soccer field um, out of concrete. Like he just, he's just a really flexible engineer that can do a lot of different projects. And because he's well known, he's been working there for 15, 20 years uh, in the in the valley where all these resettlements are, he's hired by different communities. And so I was just talking to him this summer about the, the, um, the situation and one the situation in honduras in general is worse than it was in some ways than in 2009 2009 by the way they had a coup where they kicked out the government sent him to costa rica in his pajamas at 5 a.m um, and and the opposite party took over uh the government uh, which was recognized by the us but not by any other any other countries in the world. Um, side note, and so he, uh, so they, in terms of violence, for example, it's just kind of this simmering level of violence that's that's kind of increasing, which is also why we see hundreds of children and and, and young people walking the three thousand miles from Honduras to the border of the U.S. in the hopes of getting across. Uh, they're leaving poverty. They're leading, leaving uh, unemployment or under, underemployment. They're leaving um, violence, or they're leaving threats of violence against against them. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the whole situation is really, really challenging. Suyapa has somehow, some way, been able, and I think it's again a testament to the organization. They. The organization is no longer involved or very, very, very peripherally involved in that community. Um, they've taken over the security. They're the one who locks um, a, a, a chain across the road, across the roads getting in and out of the community so that people can't drive in. They're the ones who have, they, they, they volunteer to walk the community to prevent any theft or other type of problems entering the community in the middle of the night. So they're the ones who have really recognized and decided to work together and built a sense of, of uh, common vision that low crime is an important value and that they're they're willing to spend their time and energy to do it, to volunteer, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Whereas um, Pino Alto has continued to splinter and People, it, the, the situation has continued to get worse. Corruption, there's no functioning, functioning um, what's called a patronato, um, a, govern, a yeah. governing structure there. Um, it's not, it's completely been abandoned. And so they haven't had one for a long time. Um, in Suyapa, they do have one that's functioning that, that people from each of the different sectors of the community have a representative, they vote, et cetera. So again, I think it would be worth further research to see, you know, 20 years since Hurricane Mitch, or I guess it's going to be 25 years next year. Yeah. What uh, what is what has been the outcome? And I think that my 
findings will stand that the yeah. the community Siapa has had this this long-term social health success uh Pino Alto has not and many of the other communities has not because they did not have the support at the very beginning to build that strong social foundation yeah yeah, yeah and and, and I, I was just about to there's a weird echo now um I was I was just about to ask you know if the, the the rest of Honduras has seen the model that Suyapa has created and and tried to replicate that, but you know I think the the, the point that you just made, you know probably probably kind of put puts that to bed or, or or makes that reality very difficult if there's been twenty years of you know a certain lack of structure or a certain you know just kind of like uh justified lawlessness or 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 lack of consequences for lawlessness now trying to to kind of reinvent yourself as a community becomes that much more difficult um and so i i, I know we have like 10 minutes or so left and and so the the last kind of topic that i that i wanted to explore with you is you know this this podcast I'm I'm really you know trying to get at the core of what brings our life purpose and meaning and and how how to create you know how to create lives that um, are are predicated on you know our our most altruistic values and so I was I I, I was wondering you know obviously this 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 book is about resettlement communities but I was you know I was I was curious. The, the the core tenets of the book being communities that are predicated on on outcomes of social health perform better than than ones that are focused primarily on you know economic structures institutions like you know infrastructure um the the, the kind of like artificial facades of of a well-performing community you know like you you could look at you know where I am right now in the in the South Bay area, or, or you know where you are in in Slow, and see okay, you know there's there's relatively low crime, there's industry, there's um, you know like you know uh, family units that are like fairly intact, like low levels of divorce, separation, like all these things, but you know like we're living in a mental health epidemic right now, and that's that's across the world and like you know people are more isolated and more uh distrustful of the media and political institutions than you know um than than seemingly ever before and so you know like i i just watched a, a documentary i don't know if you're if you're familiar with it the it's called the territory and it's about um the the fight for indigenous rights in brazil um and how you know like the 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 presidency of of bolsonaro really you know made way for the the development of the amazon and how that encroached on um it it, it focused on this one indigenous community under threat from these uh these loggers that were encroaching on their land and you know like i i, I think about communities like that where you know, there's there's seemingly such an emphasis on 
development and uh, and the fragmentation of your brothers and sisters and the, the desecration of, of, you know, um, the natural world and, and communities for your own, for your own gain and your own, and your own benefit and how, you know, how philosophies around like collective efficacy and, and collectivism, um, you know, can, can, can start to kind of curb those those drastic effects and so you know i i know like this is a like a, a a massive question that no individual can have the answer to or 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 know a blueprint for but you know like have you in the years since the book has been written have you kind of has you know the the findings that you have you know have have uncovered has that has that in any way changed the lens and the outlook by which you you look at you know all of these micro and macro social issues and like you know how to kind of work towards a solution for them yes um yeah there's a lot to unpack right there that you just shared mm -hmm. i think well first let's go back to the basics i don't think elon musk or jeff bezos anybody can say oh i did it on my own you know, yet that's often people kind of raise that up as if, you know, there's these these people that, that pull themselves up from, from nothing and they had a lot to start with. So going back just to the basics, like we need each other to be successful, mm -hmm. period. Uh, second, mm -hmm. we need the environment. And if we're going to try to, to address this climate crisis, we have to do it together. Uh, we can't just say, well, Global North nations need to cut emissions. No, we have to also bring up the living standards of Global South nations, too, at the same time. We can't just say, oh, you you can't have electricity uh, because that's going to create emissions when we're the ones creating 400, 500 times more emissions than in an individual somewhere else. So yeah. We have to be able to figure out how to work together and how to belong. I, I joke, you know, this is what we study in sociology. I joke, well, what's the way to bring people together? It'd probably be an alien invasion would finally be able to bring <laughs> human beings to the same place. Yeah. Well, let's look at climate, the climate crisis as an alien invasion. Let's see how can we work together to really address an existential threat to the, as some have called it, the penultimate moment of human existence, potentially, not to be dramatic, but let's let's start thinking about how to work together. Um, and, it, and it is absolutely, from my perspective, counter to, to how capitalism works and, and this idea of, of, of profit for an individual and the expansion of profit Without, without consequence, let's make as much money as I possibly can and not even ever have to think about it. <clears throat> One example is uh, Elon Musk last, last year, where he was called out for doubling his, his wealth during the pandemic when a lot of people were suffering. And uh, they said, well, you could, you know, you could, have, you could have really addressed world hunger. 2% of your wealth could, could end world hunger. And he tweeted like, well, tell me how to do so and I'll do it. So the World Food Program wrote, here's exactly how you do it. And you 
from what you've made, you wouldn't even need to spend that much of your wealth. Um, in fact, what you bought Twitter for, $44 million, billion, $44 billion, you could have ended hunger okay. for the next seven years on the planet. It's, it's sick. And so as long as we have yeah. individuals who, who do this and we, we have a system that allows this, then I don't, I don't know how we're going to make it. So the book, I think, brings us back to that foundation. Like, let's think collectively how we can benefit each other and, and the earth, the environment, so that we can have a, a better home for our children and our children's children. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a beautiful message and and I, I kind of just wanted to leave on this uh, this quote that you I think it was right before the concluding section that you include from Lao Tzu, the, the, the famous Zen philosopher, um, author of one of one of the best books that I've ever, ever read, the Tao Te Ching. Um, he said, but of the best leaders, when the task is completed, the work completed, the people will remark we have done it ourselves. And I think that is that that right there, that 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 core understanding that through a collective effort, you made the world a little bit of a better place. Like that, you know, coming coming back to that feeling is such an empowering and uplifting. I think it it unlocks a level of spirit and and consciousness in in people to uh to continue to believe that they have the intuitive, you know, understanding of, of how to make the world that they want to see. And, you know, one, one thing that, that, that came up for me when you were talking about the story with Elon is, you know, in the absence of excess, when, when there, you know, when, when, when there really isn't more to go around than there needs to be, um, and people are working together, I think you're absolved of, of that greed because there, there is, there are no resources like in a Soyapa, there's not going to become an Elon. Um, you know, that like you, you can certainly have, you know, you, you can certainly have people who are susceptible to, to greed and corruption and, you know, and, you know, self interested actions, but you know, when, when, when you have the understanding that people are working towards and orienting them to, you know, themselves towards a common, a common goal, a common ideal, there's, there's no room for, um, me, 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 like hoarding. Um, and, you know, I, I think, yeah, I, I I know we're <clears throat> I know we're about out of time, but you know what? One, one thing that I that I kept you know thinking when I was reading through the book is like how how to implement these concepts into wealthier communities because I think from the outside you can look at you know social health metrics and like you know the communities that we live in are low crime, um, you know relatively low corruption. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, like family structures are fairly intact, like, you know, how, like, 
houses are like nice and you know like the infrastructure is is modern and updated but you know i don't think that either of us would say that like by and large like the median of the community is necessarily this like heartwarming everyone knows their neighbors like you're having block parties all the time and like you know people are like singing kumbaya on the streets like it still feels at least for me it, it feels still very insular um and like you know if you want to have a good relationship with your neighbors like you really have to put in that effort yourself like there isn't a societal incentive towards that necessarily um but you know i don't want to leave the conversation on that glum note um i i i want to say it it's been an absolute honor to uh to sit down with you and and to read this book i think it's you know i i wanted to approach this interview as like i was just telling my mom before i started like like i i think this is you know an incredible achievement this book um and 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 something that will i think stand the test of time and so i wanted to approach it as like cherishing your baby <laughs> if if you will um and you know i i i hope you know I, I hope i did it service um and you know i i i think it was uh incredibly rewarding for me well thank you very much and it, it was as you mentioned it was my baby for a very very long time and it it opened a lot of doors for me to work on national and international levels so i'm grateful for those opportunities. And just to your last point, to leave it maybe on a positive note, it's true, you know, our wealth insulates us and enables us to not have to worry about each other, not have to ask each other for help. But that doesn't necessarily make us happier. Uh, I, we're, we're not a happy nation uh, compared to a lot of our uh, other industrialized neighbors. And so I think recognizing and thinking about how how can we, what, what do they do better, especially Northern Europe? Uh, what, what, what are they doing right that we're not doing? And the social aspect, I think, is a huge part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And, um, and this, this, this book was, was phenomenal to read. Um, and the fact that it wasn't available at my local library, and now that I have it in my possession forever, um, it will it will certainly be a book that uh, that I will have on my shelf for for a long time. So, um, I, I again, I, I I appreciate you you sitting down, um, and and yeah, um, I, I I hope that hope that everybody um, finds some value and and you know takes takes away a little something to uh to 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 think about um the next time they encounter a stranger on the street or or feel the need to reach out to a neighbor or in whatever work capacity they're you know they're in we're you know we're wherever whatever we're doing we're social creatures and um and the world can benefit from our generosity and our our kind spirit i i believe that and i think you do too mm -hmm. so Thank you again. Well, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you reading the book and then also having the opportunity to talk with you about it. Yeah, thank you.
Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye.